0: Imagine driving home after unsuccessfully looking for a bingo game, only to be stopped by an alien ship in the road, or trading water for space pancakes with a visitor from another world, or being taken aboard a spaceship when all you wanted to do was catch a fish. Today we have three tales of alien encounters with no judgment from me on the 144th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. Hey, are all your dreams coming true? I certainly hope so. Okay, I know the show is a little late. Last week, things just got too busy in my life to get a show done. Between work and a few personal obligations, I had to let something go, and that, unfortunately, was the podcast. To make up for it, I plan on having a show this week and next week. You know, this sounds odd, but it bums me out to miss an episode, yet once I made the decision not to do a show, there was a sense of relief saying, okay, now that I've decided not to do it, I can relax a bit and get the things that need to get done, done. So anyway, show 145 should be next Sunday, and then I'll be back on schedule. Now, before we get started, I've got a few story ideas from a couple listeners. Regina gave me one about a ghost ship, and Russell with the HMVS Sybaris. Thanks, guys. I'm sure I'll get around to using both of them. Now, let's move on. You know, over the years, I've done stories of encounters with beings from out of this world, and a few listeners have written me calling me a skeptic or a debunker. I don't really think of myself that way. For me, it's all about trying to find out the truth, or at least a possible more down-to-earth explanation that doesn't require traveling across light years of space or a worldwide conspiracy. For instance, when hundreds of people say they saw a flying saucer fly across the sky, but there's definitive evidence of a meteor that night, well, I'll take the meteor explanation. But here's the thing. I rarely think UFO sightings are hoaxes. In all but a couple of cases, I feel that those people involved were telling the truth. They truly believe in what they saw. And if people say they were in a spaceship and I don't have any evidence to the contrary, well, who am I to say they didn't meet a spaceman? So, today, for something different, I'm presenting three true stories of alien encounters in which I call the No Judgment Zone. The people in these stories all claim that something amazing happened to them, and who are we to call these people liars? All that being said, how about three stories of encounters of a peculiar kind?
1: This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C S I C O N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. It was a diamond shaped thing, and there was flames coming out of the bottom of it. My curiosity's bad, and I was gonna try to find out what it was. The light was so bright, it was blinding me. And I was standing there trying to find out everything I could. And so Vicky kept screaming for me to get back in the car that we were all going to burn to death.
0: It's amazing how one event, one evening, could change the lives of three people forever. The three-in-today story claimed that something unusual, unexplainable, occurred on an evening in December of 1960. Some people view it as one of the most amazing and convincing UFO encounters ever recorded. Others laugh at the participants as if they were some sort of mental case. But not here at Coffee with Jeff because, well, Betty, Vicky, and Colby, you've just entered the no-judgment zone. After an evening out, in which they had unsuccessfully looked for a bingo game, 52-year-old Betty Cash was driving with their friend, 57-year-old Vicky Landrum, and her seven-year-old grandson, Colby, on their way home to Daytona, Texas, in Cash's Oldsmobile Cutlass. They headed down an isolated two-lane road through the dense woods around 9 p.m. Suddenly, Colby saw a light above the trees. At first, they assumed it was a plane from the Houston Intercontinental Airport about 35 miles away. A few minutes later, as they took a curve along a winding road, they saw a light and they believed it was the same one they had seen before but it was closer, too close to be a plane, and a lot brighter. So much so that it lit the surrounding woods like daylight. It appeared to hover just over the treetops. Vicky described it as being like a diamond of fire. It came down in the road in front of them, blocking their way. Flames shot out of the bottom of the diamond-shaped ship, and they could feel its tremendous heat. Fearing that they would be burned if they drove any further, Vicky told Betty to stop. As Vicky looked on, she suddenly felt like she knew what was going on. Being a born again Christian, she interpreted the object as a sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ, telling Colby, That's Jesus, he will not hurt us. Betty wasn't so sure, and she considered turning around, but the narrow road made it impossible. Vicky got out of the passenger seat holding Colby. Betty, being filled with curiosity, also got out but walked forward to get a better look. Betty screamed for her to get back into the car, afraid that they would all be burned to death. Betty remained outside, almost mesmerized by the bizarre sight. She tried to get a good look. The heat from the object was so strong it burnt Betty's skin. Eventually she backed away and reached for the car door. The handle was so hot it burnt the skin off her hand. She used her coat as protection to open up the door and get inside. Once in the car, the dashboard had become so soft from the heat that Betty's hand left an imprint in it when she touched it. But now the car's interior was so hot that she had to turn on the air conditioning to cool them off. The three of them watched the craft as it began to rise above the trees. But then, before they knew it, a sudden fleet of what appeared to be military helicopters appeared. Betty later remarked, They seemed to rush in from all directions. It seemed like they were trying to encircle the thing. These were later identified as tandem rotor CH-47 Chinook helicopters, and Betty said she counted 23 of them. Vicki counted 21. The helicopters and UFOs disappeared in the distance. The whole encounter lasted about 20 minutes. Betty frantically drove away while Vicky tried to calm the young Colby. That night, all three began to feel sick. They complained of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, general weakness, a burning sensation in their eyes, and the feeling as though they've suffered a sunburn, Betty Cash being the worst of the three. Her condition worsened over the next few days. She began to get large painful blisters forming on her skin, and she lost clumps of hair. For a while, she refused to go to the hospital in fear they would think she was crazy. On January 3, 1981, all three went to the hospital. The young boy, Colby, was told by Vicky he would get a whipping if he told what had happened. But even knowing this, he told a story to the doctors. Betty's own doctor said this was a classic radiation injury. That's what many believers say is the main evidence, their radiation sickness. Many experts disagree for many reasons, one being that since they both lived for many years after, they could have hardly been exposed to the kind of radiation to make them as sick as they were reported to be. Betty was in the hospital for almost a month. Once released from the hospital, she was too weak to run the restaurant she owned and it soon went out of business. Their story became world-famous after it appeared on such shows as ABC's That's Incredible in which Vicki Landrum appeared and told her story under hypnosis, and UFO Cover-Up Live, in which both women appeared. They also appeared on Unsolved Mysteries, Sightings, UFO Hunters, and others. Cash and Landrum talked to U.S. Senators Lloyd Benston and John Tower, who suggested that they file a complaint with the Judge Advocate Claims Office in Bergstrom Air Force Base. In August 1981, Cash Landrum and Colby were interviewed at length by personnel at Bergstrom Air Force Base and were told that they would have to hire a lawyer and seek financial compensation for their injuries. They ended up suing the U.S. government for $20 million. The case was dismissed on August 21, 1986, due to the fact that the plaintiff's had not proved that the helicopters were associated with the U.S. government and that the military officials had testified that the United States Armed Forces did not have a large diamond-shaped aircraft in their possession. So what did happen? Well, there's very little evidence. The U.S. government denies it, of course. In fact, apparently the U.S. military simply didn't have a fleet of that many Chinook helicopters in one place, nor did any private firm. There was no picture of the car like the supposed handprint in the dash, and Betty Cash's medical records have never been released for privacy reasons, which one could understand normally, but not when a $20 million lawsuit is on the line. The most convincing evidence was that all three participants were able to go back to the site, and apparently there, according to Unsolved Mysteries on February 6, 1991... They were able to point out a spot on the road that indicated that it had been heated up to an extreme level of heating. It was burned, and it was very clear to the naked eye. One more thing. According to UFO investigators, the section of the road that the incident happened, and only that section of road, had been dug up and replaced twice since the incident. Yet there is no record of it ever being worked on. As Criswold from Plan 9 from Outer Space would say... Can you
1: prove that it didn't happen?
0: And then there, there stood a little man, I say a little
1: man, about five foot tall, holding up a jug or a, a container, and he motioned, he wanted to drink, he motioned for water. So I walked up to him to get this jug, and uh, I looked at his eyes and they were so penetrating that I had to look away. So I went to the basement to get this water, and uh, I thought, well, they want water, so I'll take it up to them and see what happens.
0: Our next story comes from Eagle River, Wisconsin. This is the tale of Joe Simonton, a man who claims to not only have met aliens, but was treated by them with a space pancake. Don't worry, Joe, you're okay, you've just entered the no-judgment zone. Joe Simonton was a 60-year-old chicken farmer whose story begins on April 18, 1961. That's just a little under two months before I was born. My birthday has nothing to do with the story, except I'm hoping to get more presents this year. Anyway, it was around 11 a.m. Joe had just finished lunch and was putting his dishes in the sink. He had glanced out of the kitchen window when he saw something in which he described as a thing heading down from the sky. said it came down like an elevator. His first thoughts were that the roof was coming off his house, but his roof was green and this was bright. He asked himself, what the hell is it? By the time he got outside, a hatchway had opened up like the trunk of a car. In there was a little man, as Joe described him, about five foot tall, holding some sort of container, making motions as if he wanted something to drink. Joe must have been brave because he walked up to take the container. When he got close, he looked at the creature's eyes. He described them as so penetrating that he had to look away. Taking the container, he went to his basement to fill it. As he said, Well, I thought, it wants water. I'll take it to him and see what happens. As Jill walked up from the basement, he could see the creature staring at him. Walking up, he didn't look the thing in the face until he got right next to him. Using both hands, he held the jug up and saw the same two penetrating eyes. As the creature took the water, Joe used his hands to brace himself against the spacecraft. With that, the mysterious being made some sort of salute with the back of his hand. Joe returned with a military salute. As he said, What am I going to do? Then he noticed another alien cooking what looked like to be pancakes. Space pancakes. They were being prepared on a square grill, and while he couldn't see any flames, it did look hot. He could see smoke. These pancakes almost looked like little dark potato chips. Joe, hoping to get some conversation started, pointed to the cook and then made an eating gesture. The alien didn't say a word, but grabbed four of the pancakes and handed them to Joe. They were hot and greasy. Joe said of these things... If that was their food, God help them, because I took a bite of one of them, and it tasted like a piece of cardboard. And if that's what they live on, no wonder they're so small. After sharing their food, they got back in the ship. The hatch closed and began to rise. It went straight up for about 20 feet, tilted about 45 degrees, then shot off towards the south. Two or three seconds later, it was out of sight. After this encounter, he gave one of the so-called pancakes to the United States Air Force. The Air Force gave it to the Food and Drug Laboratory of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. A test revealed that these pancakes were composed of hydrogenated fat, starch, buckwheat hulls, soybean hulls, and wheat bran. So they concluded that the materials these pancakes were made out of were of terrestrial origin. And how do we know all this? Well, there's a couple of complete interviews Joe did on film that you can still watch today. I'll have a link to these in today's show notes. For Joe, though, he got a little fed up with the attention he got, and I would guess got tired of being made fun of. On May 3rd, he told the United Press International that, if it happened again, I don't think I'd tell anybody about it. And what's the government's take of Joe's story? Well, according to Project Blue Book, The witness was found to be a balanced person of good mental health, but that he actually believes that the sequence of events really happened. However, the inconsistencies coupled with the lack of supporting evidence tends to indicate that the witness suffered an hallucination followed with delusion. But don't worry, Joe. There's no judgment here at Coffee with Jeff.
1: Can you prove that it didn't happen? I heard a noise and turned around and looked and seen some blue lights, some hazy blue lights. And that's when, you know, the craft landed behind us. We still weren't for sure what it was, but it landed and we turned around and the front of it opened up. And when it did, it was just like, we were paralyzed there for, he couldn't move and I couldn't move, but there's three uh, robot looking creatures that floated out.
0: And our last story in this Alien Visitation trilogy takes place in Pascagoula, Mississippi, in in which two fishermen experience something they will never forget in what is known in UFO circles as the Pascagoula Abduction. Though I'll be a laughingstock of the country, I'll tell you what I've seen, said one of the two fishermen to a reporter for the Mississippi Press News. One day, folks, you'll know it's true. It may be too late then. Charles Hickson, who was 42, and 19-year-old Kelvin Parker were co-workers of a shipyard's, and on the night of October 11, 1973, the two were fishing off the decaying pier on the west banks of the Pascagoula River. At around 9 p.m., their peaceful evening was interrupted by an unexpected zipping sound from behind them. As they looked, the mysterious sound was coming from a blue glowing object, a UFO, As it got closer, they could see it was a football-shaped ship about 8 feet wide and about 8 feet tall. It was heading towards them. It got somewhere between around 25 or 30 feet away and hovered about 2 feet above the ground. The door opened and three beings exited from the craft. They were leathery, gray-skinned, humanoid, ghost-like aliens about 5 feet tall with crab-like claws, no necks, only slits for eyes and mouths, and pointy cone-like ears and nose. Hickson at first thought they were robots. They seemed to float down to the ground. They would say in later interviews that they were scared and didn't know what was happening. However, the creatures never seemed to touch the ground and their legs all stayed together. Both would say in later interviews that they were scared and didn't believe what was happening. The aliens were on them before they knew what was happening. The two fishermen were lifted off the ground and floated into the spacecraft. Parker passed out as soon as he went into the ship. Inside the ship, they had no feelings and were helpless. The only thing they could do was move their eyes. Inside, things were bright but of no particular color and they couldn't see any light fixtures. Something big and round that looked like a big eye moved back and forth across my body, Hickson recalled. The two creatures moved me around so the eye could check on me in various positions. I just kind of floated without touching anything. I didn't see any attachment for the eye. It was just kind of suspended in the air. Parker later said, They gave a thorough, I mean thorough, examination to me just like a doctor would. Both said they never felt any pain and were not hurt. And never once did the creatures ever try to communicate with them. How rude. After the examination was over, they were carried back outside and floated down to their feet. Hickson was so weak, he fell over and hit the ground. He said the young Parker was terrified, flopping and shrieking. I got him back to his senses, he said. And then he said he told Parker, We've got to get away from here, son. Ain't nobody going to believe this. Let's just keep it to ourselves. But then Hickson thought about it some more he decided that some officials need to know just what happened. The first thing officials did upon hearing this was to use an intoximeter on both men to make sure they weren't on drugs. They insisted they were completely sober at the time, but Hickson did say he had two or three good shots of liquor to settle his nerves after it happened. They aren't lying, said Deputy Howard Esley, Chief Investigator for Sheriff Fred Diamond, I really don't know what happened, but whatever it was, it was real to them. Both men agreed to a lie detector test. Then Captain Glenn Ryder said that he laughed at the report, but then met with the men. Parker and Hickson stuck to their story. I don't know what happened to them, Ryder said. I wasn't there with them, but I know you don't fake fear, and they were fearful. They were fearful. Kelvin Parker later said, I want to emphasize to people, please don't shoot at these things. They don't mean us any harm. I believe if they came back, I could face them and try to communicate with them. And on the 40th anniversary of their encounter, he told the Associated Press, this is something I really didn't want to happen. Now, Joe Nickel, the senior research fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, who has been investigating cases such as this for years, has a theory. Maybe it was a hypnagogic fantasy, a waking dream. You know, let's say that they had been drinking a little beforehand and Hickson began to doze. Then he saw something in the sky, might have been a plane or a balloon, and began to dream. Remember, Parker was out for most of the story. And Joe Nickel points out that Hickson has added to his story as time went on. I'll have a link to Joe's theory in the show notes. But whatever happened to Hickson and Parker, if they say it happened the way it happened, that's good enough for us at the no-judgment zone. Can you prove
1: that it didn't happen? Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to The Sad Sack.
0: All right, a little bit before I go, um, a little explanation about today's episode. These stories that I was telling today are, are stories that I've worked on in the past and realized, well, they're wasn't enough there for a complete copy with Jeff show. And last week, knowing that I was so busy, I thought, well, this is a good time to use those three stories in sort of a trilogy of alien abductions. And then, of course, last week didn't happen, but I thought, well, now that I've got a good start on this trilogy, why not just finish it? Now, do I believe these people in these stories actually met aliens? No, no, I don't. You know, like I said, I believe they believe it. But even though I don't know what it is, I think there must be a more logical explanation to what happened. And that's the proof that a lot of UFO believers give you. Can you prove it didn't happen? Well, of course you can't. But talking to a lot of people, it seems I'm in the minority, I think. From what I've encountered, most people believe that they're is some sort of alien presence on the earth let's just hope it's not those lizard people from the show v or the ugly aliens from they live i do think that if i'm um ever in a situation where i meet an alien and they leave and i have no real evidence that it actually happened i might just keep it to myself because many of these people in my opinion were unjustly laughed at and made fun of for telling people the truth as far as they believed it you know what i'm saying anyway why don't we get to the ending credits you know you can help us out here at psycon by visiting our patreon page could use you to be a monthly subscriber i mean we could really use you to be a monthly subscriber for more information, just go to PsyCon.fm, that's csico and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Cycon why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? We have an amazing selection of shows for you to listen to, and you can hear them all over at PsyCon at csicon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, send me a message. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a coffeewithjeff Facebook page. You're invited to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. You want to support the show, but you don't have the money? And believe me, I understand that. Then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help. Remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psychon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psychon Network, my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out, of course, to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week with an episode.
1: He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee, coffee with Jeff coffee. coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always happy But that was okay. She was the dawn of just new day. Coffee with just coffee or coffee with just coffee or coffee with just. Years go by and life filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all. To have some coffee with you, coffee with Jeff, coffee, coffee with Jeff, coffee with Jeff, coffee.